listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So you're telling me a story about McKinsey from the book, The Firm, which is the legacy book about McKinsey. <laughs> yes, and I recommend it to anyone that lives in the professional services world. It's by Duff McDonald. It's, it's an excellent book. It's a it is an unbelievable book and it's a fabulous read too, because it's not at all what you would think. I use the book and a story from the book that really resonated with me because it reflected my experience as a marketer and in, in two decades in professional services. And the story was how McKinsey's CEO had fired the head of marketing or communications, whatever the moniker was for the firm, because of an interview in Business Week that was very negative about the firm. And I found it intriguing because marketing is often a scapegoat for problems related to growth or public reputation. But McKinsey did not have a marketing problem. They had a cultural problem, and that cultural problem poured out into the public market. And the problem that McKinsey was having, that the then CEO was so obsessed with growth, financial growth and office expansion, that the partners had reached a point where they thought that that growth had cost the firm it's soul. I know you're not one of the people that's saying this, but what do they mean by that? What do you think they mean by that? When someone says it's cost us our soul, what are they even saying? I think every firm at its very heart knows itself. It knows its values. It knows its value to its market. And the individuals know why they want to be a part of that organization. And when the organization heads down a direction that deviates from that sense of self, people begin to feel it. And they may not recognize it out of the gate, but they begin to see something's not right here. And there were a lot of other things going on at McKinsey at that time related to that CEO's tenure that ultimately ended up in an indictment of that CEO. In a court of law? Yes. Oh, okay. But but the initial reaction is to blame marketing um, on the issues, on the messages. Blame the people that let the story get out. Yes. Throttle the story versus looking at what is wrong here in the first place that people are feeling this way and, and publicly saying these things to journalists, mind you. Exactly. Okay. And that was pre-social media as well. Mm. So I think there's an even more relevant dynamic today. But it helped me kind of coalesce my experience at other firms that had gone through similar life cycles, if you will. And I became kind of infatuated with this topic, particularly because I didn't grow up in professional services. I grew up in a family business. I grew up in the auto parts industry, which was probably the antithesis of the white shoe world of of professional services. 
And I just loved observing how professionals interact with one another and the cultures of these firms that I was either a part of or that I serve as a consultant. And I noticed that professional services firms recruit some of the best minds in the world. Um, they come from phenomenal schools. They're, you know, cheerleaders and quarterbacks and top of their class and just phenomenal human beings that are really driven. But even with all those qualities, they run into these very human problems when they get together and are pursuing however they define success. And you see that in an individual level, you see it at a practice level, and oftentimes at a firm level. And I want to understand why could a very a firm filled with talented people collapse and one that's kind of maybe average talent, you know, and I, I put average in air quotes, really succeed. And it really came down to culture. And that's nothing new in and of itself. Because, you know, Peter Drucker said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast and Simon Sinek, you know, tells everybody to start with their why. I mean, these aren't new concepts, but I was fascinated with it in the professional services world. And I've come to reach this conclusion that professional services firms, by their very nature, because they're matrix, because their performance measures are based on billable hours and practice growth and other kind of decentralized performance metrics, that what they sell is intangible, highly fungible, very competitive environments, that they create very, very one-of-a-kind environments. And how you deal with those issues really dictate whether or not a firm is going to be successful and ultimately leave a legacy and being one of the best in fill in the blank. So let me ask a question. Is the hypothesis of the story that teams beat individuals, you know, that the firm with the most talent may underperform or even fail and the team with the average talent could outperform its potential or outperform its peers and succeed greatly by the inherent nature of the team, the way they assemble a team and the way that they define their culture. Is that the essence of the... I think teamwork is is part of it, but that's not the totality. Okay. It's a recognition that professional services systems are plagued with two dimensions that I think make them unique. One might argue, well, that exists in all of humanity, but for all intents and purposes, I think it's unique to professional services. And the first one is the structural dimension. You don't normally see matrix organizations anywhere else but in professional services. Let's define matrix. what we mean by a matrix organization, because that's I've seen them lots of places, I think. So define what we mean by a matrix organization. So a, a matrix organization in the professional services world is normally overlapping P&Ls and management responsibilities for individuals so that you're serving multiple masters at once. You could be part of a geography. You could be part of a practice. You could be part of an industry. 
all at one time. You might be part of multiple industries <laughs> or drawn into other geographies to serve a particular type of client as well. And, and those this is are the, the classic, I have a dotted line to syndrome. Yes. Right. I report it's to there. Bill, but I have a dotted line to Lisa. Okay. What does the dotted yeah. line mean? Okay. We've had lots of clients with that and I always laugh because I say, well, what does the dotted line mean? Nobody really knows. A dotted line means lots of confusion, politics, and trying to balance a lot of attributes, you know, in the world of relationships and realizing my own definition of success. So that is unique, I think, in professional services. And when you mix in that kind of structure, with the human attribute that are personalities that are attracted to professional services. They're normally really smart. They're individuals that are used to being successful in high school and college academically and perhaps athletically or in other performance measures. There's more structural dimensions to that, though. I mean, I know you'll be shocked. I did read the whole ebook, but the because <laughs> you threw out more. And I think there's more that are that are also meaningful to touch on before you go to the human attributes. You know, you, you threw out, well, a couple of the, the two that jumped out to me that you threw out was one, just the at times myopic focus on billability, right? The, the intense pressure there is to deliver a certain utilization level in terms of billability that sometimes governs the whole firm. Actually, sometimes it consumes the firm, right? Mm-hmm. The other one you threw out that I liked a lot was inefficient resource allocation, which was which doesn't seem unique to professional services, really. I, I suppose almost every company I've ever dealt with, you, you see that, right? Because I think the argument you make in the ebook, which is a really good one, is that too often resources are allocated based on maybe scale of a practice or the personality of the leader of that practice versus the growth potential of the practice. And that's sort of inefficient. Well, that's sort of, that's completely inefficient. So are there any other structural dimensions that are worth noting? I guess is, what was the question? A really important one is the nature of partnerships. Hmm. That and, and not all professional services anymore are partnerships. You, you see, you know, these in, in other structures, but there's still the, the overarching structure of I've been here. I paid my dues. I have a certain amount of equity. However, that equity is distributed. And that creates, again, that human dynamic of live and let live, a lot of backroom deals and negotiating, building up constituencies in order to affect change. There certainly is more more requirement for leaders to establish consensus than in any other typical business. And we see a lot of, I mean, a lot of AE firms are ESOPs or, you know, employee-owned entities, or they're very diversified ownership groups. So 17, 18, 25 owners or more or whatever, right? And on some level, even if there is a CEO or a firm leader, they're they're bound by sort of building consensus on any any meaningful decision. And sometimes I'm sure you've seen this too, is that sometimes there's rotating CEOs. Have you ever seen that where they sort of establish a, a figurehead who's the leader and they rotate them out every two years on a, on a structured cycle, mm-hmm. which seems odd. I mean, at the end of the day, if you've got 20 partners, whatever the number is, doesn't matter. 
you, wouldn't you want to pick the one who's the best leader, <laughs> the one that has the best ability to lead the firm forward wherever it's going to go and let them run their course for five years, eight years, 10 years versus, you know, rotate them out because their time is done. You know, anyway, so, yeah. so those are some yeah. of the structural dimensions that are unique to professional services firms to some extent, right? Mm-hmm. I think the other one that you've kind of alluded to there is this path of least resistance in professional services firms. And I think this leads as a result of the decentralization is firms are political and partners like to keep their powder dry. So it's sometimes it's just a lot easier to go along to get along. Can I pick at the metaphor real quick? When we say powder dry, what are, what are you saying? <laughs> You're saying that they that they have gunpowder that they're not using in a, in a, in a yes. gunfight? Is that? Yes, okay. it's a military expression. Yeah, that's a really healthy metaphor to have for your business. You know that that it's not it's not a collaborative discussion about where we're going. It's a gunfight in the back of the conference room between some partners, some of yeah. which don't want to shoot. Keep going. I'm sorry. So <laughs> you might say they choose their battles. What what yeah. they end up doing is saying, "Hey, go do whatever you're going to do. If it doesn't impact me." I don't care. Mm. And as a result, everybody's running in their own direction, doing their own thing. That's hard to scale. Yes, very hard to scale. Yeah. And a lot of firms ultimately really aren't one firm firms. They're just a bunch of individuals running around under some umbrella brand that is so, I don't know, all encompassing. It means nothing to anybody, whether that's externally or internally. I remember we built, and we're going to leak out of this for a second. I remember we built this website for this engineering firm, and it's been over a decade now, 10 or 11 years ago. And in the process, we had gone through a whole bunch of repositioning work and rebranding work and just a lot of deep thought about where the firm was going to compete, why they were competing, where they were competing, and how we wanted to tell that story. And we get to the 11th hour to launch this site. And there's this guy that's got this tiny little like practice that's way outside the wheelhouse of everything we've talked about, way off to the side. There's no plans to grow this practice. There's no marketing or business development resources put towards this practice. There's there's really, he's managing a couple of accounts and, and that are healthy and profitable and he's doing his thing and everything's fine. And in the 11th hour of a web launch, we have to sandwich this guy's like whole practice into the model because we didn't want to upset him. And I was just sort of like taken aback because I'm saying, well, we're, we have no plans to grow this practice. We have no marketing resources to grow this practice. We have no business development resources to grow this practice. Why do we need to do this? And your answer, you know, you say is exactly what you just said was like, well, you need to appease that person because their ego has been damaged. And it was really crazy. And that happens every day in professional yeah. service where one person can say, hey, I'm a product, put me up there. I need to see that. And I think that is the most obvious illustration of the path of least resistance. And it is a good segue into the second attribute, the human attribute that is unique in professional services. So before we go there, though, can we summarize a little bit about the structural dimensions? Because it seems to me that the structural dimensions collectively, all these things together, the matrix organization, the billability, the partnership model, you know, or the employee-owned model creates this path of least resistance. It all bundles up together to say that this is something that's really hard to scale for all these complexities. Is that kind of the summation of those things? Yes, but it is scalable. scalable, And the firms that scale well recognize these structural defects, these roadblocks that create dysfunction Mm. and take them head on. 
those that don't take the path of least resistance, like you just described in terms of, oh, here's a partner or a potential partner needs a book of business, you know, put his moniker out on the website and build him, you know, write him a brochure and do a webinar for him or whatever. It, It just siphons off resources that could really drive growth. And that happens every day. But the path of least resistance really begins to manifest itself culturally because partners want to keep their powder dry or choose their battles, often live and let live. And when you get bad behaviors, whether that's ethical bad behavior, managerial bad behavior, business development bad behavior, client service bad behavior, you're less inclined to confront and correct that behavior of another partner. That sends out reverberations throughout the firm that then begin to really cause negative effects across the firm and real dysfunction. So all of those structural things are important, but they lead to this path of least resistance. Let's just let them do what they're going to do and we'll get on with it. Like, It's an ostrich head in the sand. It will self-correct. And it just doesn't. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. All right. So let's talk about the second dimension then. So the first dimension is all is these structural issues that make it hard to scale, that we put our heads in the sand and we hope we'll correct themselves. The second group is the human attributes of any organization, right? So let's talk about that. So you said, hey, we have really smart people. They're, they're used to success. They're used to lots of success. What, what else is beneath that? They are used to lots of success but they are often very insecure. And we see this, I mean, there's even been studies on it that talk about how experts see themselves. Those that think that their skills are actually more expert than they are, are those that are more expert than people want to actually own. It's it's illustrated so directly in professional services because our product is our thoughts, is our ideas, is our results. And human beings want to be a part of something. They want to be part of the group, but they also want to be recognized as different, better, give me a trophy, you know, recognize me in front of my peers as being exceptional. Those are are really important types of dimensions. But human beings are human beings, and we are all motivated by some fear. And I don't care if it is, you know, the most beautiful girl in high school who thinks she's unattractive. It's the valedictorian who thinks he's not smart enough. It is the athlete that thinks He doesn't run fast enough, far enough, hit hard enough, score enough goals, whatever the case may be. Their success is driven by their insecurity of their fear. And 
when we see that type of behavior manifest, it looks like an inability to say either to a client or to my team, I don't know an answer for, you know, 99% of consultants saying, I don't know, is almost impossible to do. Yeah. And we, you know, Charlie Green talks about this quite a bit in the trusted advisor and how important it is to be able to articulate that in order to build trust. But it's such an issue that he's writing books around it. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think that that's really interesting. I want to sum something up real quick. I want to make sure I understand. So the BSFPS, so is is a phrase you've coined, right? You're using it to describe what you're saying is the dysfunctionality of a professional services firm, correct? Yes. And there are many other terms that encapsulate this. And that the central argument is that the dysfunctionality comes from these two dimensions. It's this combination of a structural, man, I was about to say disability, but that's not the right thing. The structural element of the firm combined with the propensity of the firm to collect these really highly successful individuals that, like everyone, are motivated by some level of fear, but unlike many, maybe have not experienced that many failures. That to me is the big thing that jumped out in the, when I was reading it was that when you stop and think about it in, in business today, we spend a lot of energy talking about the incredible importance of failure. VCs are more likely to fund early stage companies where the, they have seasoned managers who have shown past failure. They'd much rather see a seasoned executive who's already failed than a younger executive who's never failed, right? Mm-hmm. And I know even when I think about with my kids, I talk when we talk about learning, I'm much more interested in seeing my kids struggle and fail and respond than knock out days all day when as they get older. Like there's no learning that happens from being in a situation where it's it's easy and you succeed every time. Learning happens when you're challenged and you're struggling and maybe you even fall down and then you pick back up again. And so on some levels, I would argue that that is an interesting notion that the likelihood that these firms are bringing in people who have experienced failure is lower <laughs> than a firm that's mm-hmm. not hiring from the top of the top, right? Mm-hmm. So these two things together sort of ultimately create the dysfunctionality of the firm is the essence of the first half of this argument. Now, the second half of your argument, if I understand it, and I'm paraphrasing on your behalf, and now you can jump in and say, no, you're wrong, is that those two things together keep firms from meeting their full growth potential. Yes, wholeheartedly. Okay. Now let's talk about the remedies to that. So let's talk about, so if that's the case, what do I do about it? If I'm a firm leader, like, or just a firm, I don't even know who the person is, but how do I overcome these two big barriers that are making my firm dysfunctional and are blocking our ability to get what we really want? So I've already kind of alluded that those that are aware of it, that it's inherent in these systems, they make a choice to not let it hinder the firm. So they own it. Others that don't address it, just allow it to continue unabated. And what it becomes is just sand in the machine, bringing the gears to a crawl. And normally, I've seen four reasons why these behaviors continue within firms and hinder their growth. And the first one is uh, the firm has a culture of, of optionality, going back to the path of least resistance. You know, I have my utilization and my revenue number. 
I'm just going to hit it. Just leave me alone. I'm not going to do anything else unless it's going to impact that. So just go away. So any attempt to make a more cohesive firm falls by the wayside. The second is there's a culture of, of feigned accountability. We have all these value posters and brand initiatives in so many firms talking about, hey, we hold one another accountable, but most firms don't. They just present it as if, and they just keep doing what they're going to do. If, if there's accountability, you're going to see a firm firing people for bad behavior. And it's not just bad behavior that makes it out into the press. It's the bad behaviors that only one or two people see. They put an end to it right there. They hold people accountable for what they're doing. Third, these firms punish risk-taking. To your point earlier about failing, they look down on failing. I have a fear of failing, therefore, that's going to manifest in how I communicate with others and my expectation of them as well as myself. I think top firms say failing is okay as long as we take the personal responsibility, own it, learn from it, and disseminate that knowledge through the firm. I have a quote popped up in my head from a client engagement, and I won't name any names, but it was this client said to me in this review we're doing, he said, we can do anything we want as long as it's profitable from day one. And I love the (laughs) quote because it speaks to so many of the things you're talking about, right? We can do anything we want. Pause for a second. That implies the decentralized sort of chaotic mess that firms can be. And as long as it's profitable from day one is exactly what you just said. Like, we're not going to take on any real risk here, right? Like that's... That's scary. I just popped in my head and I had to share it because it just, it just describes so clearly what you're saying. So, okay. So four reasons and I cut you off. So reason four is. And the fourth reason is it requires these human beings to act in an unnatural way in the professional services world. One, you have to have uncomfortable conversations and the path of least resistance is sure a lot nicer than confronting somebody. Two, you have to trust others when the heat is on. And you can tell whether there's trust in a firm or not fairly quickly by things like cross-selling effectiveness and one partner's willingness to take another partner out there and trust that partner with his precious client relationship. People are not inclined to do that in most firms. Hmm. Three, you got to get rid of some billable time. You have to give time for these uncomfortable conversations of the learning of the failure. And that those things just take time, which is leads me to the fourth one is these firms that are successful doing this are thinking long term. They are seeing themselves as stewards of a firm that they want to leave better off for the next partners or group of people coming through. They don't manage month to month or quarter to quarter. They manage decade to decade. And it's just a fundamental difference. And we all know that. We all know that a public versus a private company, but this is that on steroids. So those, those are why they continue unabated. But that's why the problems continue unabated. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's, it's natural for people. I have a, another story and then I want to ask you something. So 
You ever see the Jerry Seinfeld episode where he talks about how you can sense when a show is not going to finish the way you hoped it would. So you're watching the show and you're into it and you can't wait to see what's going to happen. And then you look at the clock and it's like at 28 minutes and there's no way they're going to be able to wrap this story before it ends. You ever see that one? No, please keep going. I can picture it in my mind. So that's totally where we are. (laughs) I feel like we've dissected this, the problem, you know, what, what creates the BSFPS, what creates the dysfunctionality so articulately well. And my sense is we've probably overrun our time, which means we have to punt the solution to the next episode. (laughs) That's why I shared that story. So that means same bat time, same bat place, same bat (laughs) channel. To hear how you solve this problem. So, but before we stop and before we part, one of the things I'm curious if you know, and I don't know, is you open this with this story about McKinsey and this this really captivating and interesting story about the, the marketing leader that gets fired because the cultural base the culture basically bleeds out into the press in a way that the leaders find unflattering. And then you mentioned, hey, the CEO gets indicted. Do you know the end of that story? Can can you share that with us? Do you know what, what happens next? Because I'm dying to know. I don't know what happens next. I don't know this story. You'll have to download the white paper or read the firm to find out. <laughs> I must not have finished that because I think I, I don't think I made it through the whole the whole book. I think I kind of tuned out after a while. <laughs> All right. Well, I sincerely enjoyed hearing you talk through this idea of the BSAPS because you and I have talked about it loosely multiple times at different episodes. And this is the first time I've heard you sort of articulate it end to end, well, not end to half end, I guess. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher.